0: Welcome to Point Me to Jesus. I am your host, Tara McClary-Reeves, and you're getting ready to experience the fangirl interview. Um, I will tell you, Bob Lapine has been not only one of my heroes of the faith, but also my handsome hubby, Lee's hero of the faith, for decades. Bob, you don't know this, but you and I have traveled millions of miles together across this beautiful country. Uh, since 1992, Bob has been the voice of Family Life Radio with Dennis Rainey, and I have literally listened to probably every one of the thousands of interviews that Bob and Dennis have done. His voice has inspired, it has encouraged, but not just his voice, it is his heart, a passion for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is unmistakable. And we don't take it for granted at all, Bob Lapine. Thank you so much. Bob is also the voice of Truth For Life with Dr. Alistair Bed, which is another one that I enjoy listening to. And I'm just so grateful as they exalt the living word of God. He does a lot with Nancy um, DeMoss-Wolgemuth and her ministry as well. Uh, you can tell a lot about the character of a man by the friends that he keeps. And all of these are just honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, I'm grateful. Bob has also been on the board of the Religious Broadcasting Network for years and years, and many people in that business of communication look to Bob as the guru of all things radio. We're just so grateful for his influence there as well. Most importantly, apart from being a sincere, sold-out follower to the Lord Jesus Christ, Bob is the husband to Mary Ann. They have five children and nine grandchildren. And I will tell you, Bob, that one of the greatest pleasures that Lee and I have experienced in our married life um, in the last few years has been to double date in Washington, D.C. with you and Mary And I'm just so grateful for that time. And I want to tell you, listeners and viewers, that Bob and Mary are even better than you can imagine them to be in person. Bob, thank you so much for gifting us with a few minutes of your time today.
1: You are so kind. It's a delight to be here and uh, to be able to talk with you and, and to have this virtual uh, contact. I wish we, the four of us could get together and have another meal, but we'll just have to make do with this for now.
0: Yes, well, we'll definitely look forward to, to that second double date. Bob, not only are you a great vocal communicator and speaker, but you are an amazing writer, too. And I want to talk to you a little bit. I'm sure that it has been a great test of your faith to launch a book in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. And I I pray that the invitation to be on this show helps a little bit um, for our viewers and listeners to get out and buy a copy of this most incredible resource, Love Like You Mean It. Bob, Lee and I have read it and already it has impacted so many conversations. And I just want to thank you for your dedication and your discipline to write this resource that is gifted not only and should be, I hope everybody gets one for Christmas because Mm -hmm. your married friends as well as your single friends need this study because it really is a study. And I'll have to say, Bob, if I could have gifted Adam and Eve (laughs) one book after Genesis 3, it would definitely have been this book.
1: Well, that's, that's very kind. Yeah, th- th- this book was a—it was a labor of love, and of course, it was all written before we knew what a pandemic was gonna was gonna be for us. But uh, this has really been in my heart for for many years. Uh, I serve as the teaching pastor at our local church, and so I preached through First Corinthians thirteen a number of years ago, and got all done with the sermon series and started thinking about the fact that. Uh, that I focus on marriage and family throughout the week as I'm working on family life today. But I hadn't really applied First Corinthians 13 in a marriage context as I preached through it. I thought this has a lot to say to married couples. So I went back through the passage with my, my marriage filter on and said, what is this saying to me about our marriage? What, it, what would it say to others about how we're to live out love in marriage? And that's really where this book came from.
0: And it truly is that passage is so often read at many weddings, um, and I think a lot of people are are challenged by it some some of of us are flummoxed by it, and you do such a great breakdown. of of each of the attributes of love, but before we get into looking um, and dissecting some of those attributes, when was the first time you were introduced to this passage?
1: (laughs) I tell this story in the book. I I was in in junior high, and I used to walk home from school every day. It was about a two-mile walk home and uh, I, would, I would pass by the Dairy Queen on my way home. I usually stopped at the Dairy Queen on my way home. And you'd just you'd wander with your book bag on your back going home. Well, sometime during my junior high years, a new store went into uh, the, on the main street that I was walking by in Kirkwood, Missouri. And it was a, and I didn't know what this was as, as an eighth grader, but it was a head shop. Now, some of your viewers don't know what a head shop is either, and good for them that they don't, but back in the 60s, these were stores that opened up that were, the the clientele was people who were in the drug culture, they were, so you go in and the room was black lit and there was a lot of incense and psychedelic music was playing and leather fringe jackets were for sale, rolling papers for marijuana cigarettes. But up on the wall in this head shop, I'll never forget this, there was a poster of Janis Joplin, there was one of Jimi Hendrix, there are all these band posters. And then there's there were two side by side that had texts on them. The one on the left said, you are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And went through this whole explanation of this is who you are and this is your place in the universe. Right next to that is this other poster that says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, And and of course, this was the free love movement. All you need is love. It's the summer of love. So anything with love was good in the the psychedelic headshot. But I, I thought back on that later and go, I wonder if those people really understood what it was they had on their wall, where it came from. Here's a Bible passage, a classic Bible passage, in the middle of everything else. But I think it taps in, Tara, to this. I think everybody recognizes the power of love, the importance of love. I don't know anybody who would say love is a bad thing. Love is wrong. We need less love in our world. Your non-Christian friends are all about love. And so let's have a deeper understanding of what does the Bible say is our definition of love. That's going to help us know how we engage with everybody. Of course, specifically in this case, how we engage with one another in a marriage relationship.
0: Yes. And you do such a great job, Bob, taking each of the attributes and we go from, and I'll just read them straight from humility, generosity, peace, virtue, honesty, tenacity, and in in chapters two through 10, breaking each one of those down and giving questions. And it's just so engaging. I mean, it really is a teaching tool and that's why I just want this in everyone's home. But I think um, apart from the fact that you do a brilliant job breaking each one of the attributes down, chapter one which which again you you kind of allude to where you first heard first corinthians 13 but you showed me your true love for your reader because Mm -hmm. you extend uh, the answer to the puzzle uh, immediately Um, can you expound upon chapter one a little bit more how you set the stage that none of this works but for one particular relationship.
1: Yeah, as you study 1 Corinthians 13, you recognize that the church that Paul is writing this letter to is a carnal church. It's a church that has all kinds of sin issues. And and we need to understand they're coming out of a pagan environment. A lot of those pagan practices are ingrained. They don't know any better. They're just learning the gospel. So Paul carefully and gently will take them through and correct and rebuke. You shouldn't be thinking this way. You need to be thinking this way. And, and when we get to this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, he's just been talking about the fact that these are very gifted people who are using their spiritual gifts, the gifts that God has given them, they're using them, they're wanting to employ them, but, but they're really self-focused. They, they want to draw attention to themselves. They want to be acknowledged and rewarded for their giftedness and for, uh, they, they want the esteem of men. Yeah. So Paul says, God has given you gifts. You're supposed to use those gifts, but not for your own glory, for His glory. And then he says at the end of chapter 12, he says, if you have all of these gifts, but you're still lacking one thing, then none of it matters. And that's where he 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 moves into says these gifts apart from love yeah. are meaningless. Yeah. You really you read the first three verses in First Corinthians 13. Yeah. It says you you can uh, you can speak eloquently you can know mysteries, you can even lay your life down as a martyr. But if you don't have love, none of those things are going to matter. And so the equation I use is everything minus love equals nothing. Right. And we don't think that way. We think everything minus love is going to be less than. And Paul says, no, it's not less than, it's nothing. Love is paramount. If that's not the foundation on which everything is being built, then you have built your structure on sand, not on rock. So this is so vital for all of us in our walk with Jesus that we understand that our love for him and our love for others has to be the foundation on which our life is built. Uh, If we don't get that right, then we're building on a faulty foundation.
0: And I think this is missed so often. uh, Even among popular Christian literatures, they don't get to the heart of the matter, and that's that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, because apart from our relationship with Him, we don't have the Holy Spirit that works all these things out on, on our behalf. So so thank you for not leaving us in the dark with that. Um, well,
1: everything in 1 Corinthians 13, every all of these qualities of love that are talked about here, yes. if we say, okay, I'm going to grit my teeth and I'm going to try to do better at being patient or at being kind or not being self-serving or being humble, well, we're setting ourselves up for failure because it is not in us to do those things right. unless the Holy Spirit is in us and he can do that in and through us. So we have to understand in our in our own flesh there's no capacity for these things, but in Christ we can we can do these things. So we have to understand that foundationally in all of this.
0: And you you set the stage so beautifully and I just want to thank you for doing that. Um, you know, I'm so appreciative for your honesty and just getting to the source immediately and just weaving that throughout. A lot of people that are in marital crises often assume that they could just fake it till they make it. Um, and you, in your title, talk about love like you mean it. Can you explain the title a little bit?
1: Yeah, I was with, I'll explain it this way. I was with a couple uh, just a couple of weeks ago who, a couple in our church having some marital distress. This is a couple that's been married for more than four decades, but there was alienation and isolation. They were saying things and doing things that were hurtful to one another, not understanding one another. And, and they approached me and uh, asked if we could get together. And so we spent the evening talking. And as as I was talking with them, I recognized that uh, what what was happening here was that they were viewing love in marriage the way I think a lot of us default to. They were viewing it like consumers. Yeah. Which is, uh, I I am in love with you. If I'm getting a return on my investment, right. yeah. Uh, I I love. In fact, I I kind of confessed this to Mary I think when we got married, what I was really saying is, I love the way you make me feel. When I say I love you, what I mean is I love what how I feel when I'm with you, how you make me feel, and it was less about me actually loving you and me actually loving the feeling I was having. And this is where we got to turn it around. Love like you mean it is a way to say, love like you mean it is is not what are you getting out of this, but what are you putting into this? What are you communicating? How are you selflessly, sacrificially loving another person regardless of what's coming back to you on that? And and here's where we go to what Jesus said. He said, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Well, that's true in marriage. There's no greater love in a marriage than when we're laying down our lives for one another and say, I want to serve you. I want to, I'm not here, I'm I'm here to please Jesus. Yes. and, And I want you to be pleased in Jesus. So it's not, I'm here just to make you happy. I'm here to make God happy. Yeah." But I want you to be drawn into that. I'll share this with you. I had some friends years ago, I'd ask them, if you were sitting down with an engaged couple and you had to share a Bible passage with them about marriage and you could not use the key ones, you can't use Ephesians 5, you can't use 1 Peter 3, can't use Genesis 2, got to go away from all the regular ones. I said, what would you share? And one friend said to me, that's easy. He said, I would share Psalm 34.3. And I'd heard this verse before, but I'd never thought of it in a marriage context. He said, I used this verse when I proposed to my wife. And the verse is, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And I thought, that's perfect. That's what this is supposed to be about. Love like you mean it is magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That's where love is found.
0: I cannot thank you. That was just a divine conversation. I was riding in the car, and I was taking the children to tennis or somewhere during that interview, and I couldn't write the verse down. And so (laughs) that has been bothering me for years. I have looked through the Psalms trying to figure out what verse that was. So
1: that's the one right there. Seriously,
0: Bob. Thank you so much. Is that why you think, Bob, that Christian marriages, the statistics? divorce-wise, are so scarily close to uh, secular marriages?
1: Well, I, I think we have to, first of all, back off and say, when you talk about Christian marriages and secular marriages, we're talking about church-going people versus people who don't go to church.
0: Okay.
1: What, what this research has found is if we're talking about people who are in church regularly, like like three out of four Sundays, and reading their Bible regularly and praying together as a couple— the divorce statistics drop down to about 2%. Wow. So if, if we're talking about people who live in a Christian nation and they're Christians because their daddy was a Christian and because they go to church occasionally, yeah, the divorce statistics are the same because they're not their their life hasn't been reshaped by the gospel. Right. When your life is radically reshaped by the gospel, yeah. that does change the way you view yourself, the way you view marriage, the way you view love. And it should have an impact on your marriage relationship. I think divorce statistics in the church are what they are because people are being catechized by the culture on what love is rather than being catechized by the word of God. People, if you ask people to define love, I talk about this in the book. I asked a young couple who was in premarital. I said, give me your definition of love. And they wrote down hallmark poetry, right? Yeah. it was just i i love how he makes me feel when this or i love the way he looks at me i love when we're together it it wasn't the gritty work boot kind of love that i think we need yeah. and and so i think marriages succeed when we understand love love is hard love takes work and sacrifice and commitment it's not just do i have the the tingles like dr gary chapman likes to talk about do i have those tingles today no, it's, it's what am I pouring into our marriage today? When couples are committed to serving one another and loving one another in marriage, divorce statistics plummet.
0: And again, in one of the chapters, you, you address a lightning rod that is both in churches and in society in general. Um, the verse about, or many passages about, wives submitting to their husbands. Tell our, our audience how, how you, do you deal with that particular mandate. Yeah.
1: This was this was maybe you had asked me earlier about the hardest chapter to write in this book. This was probably the hardest chapter for me to write was this chapter uh, where the Bible says love is not self-seeking. And and as I looked at that definition and I thought, in a marriage relationship, what happens when we are self-seeking? What's the opposite of self-seeking? And, and what does it mean when we think I want to go my way and you want to go your way and we're not on the same page? This is where I had to get into what the Bible has to say about divinely ordained roles and responsibilities in marriage. Um, the Bible's clear on this in yeah. Ephesians chapter 5 where it says that husbands are to be loving leaders in their marriage relationship, and a wife is to be a, a supporter to her husband, an encourager, a responder to his leadership. And, and as soon as I say that, there are some people who have just heard me say that, and they're they're triggered already. Yeah. I remember an interview we did on Family Life Today years ago with an author named Bunny Wilson, and she, she told the story about Uh, reading that passage in Ephesians five for the first time as a new Christian, she said, I closed my Bible and I said, God, why'd you have to mess up a good book with something like this in it? (laughs) And I think a lot of people read this and go, that just that can't be how we're supposed to do this. A wife is supposed to submit and a husband's supposed to lead, but doesn't that mean this and doesn't that mean that? So I I really in the chapter where I deal with love not being self-seeking and us playing our our roles in marriage, I tried to say There's a right way and a wrong way for a husband to lead. And there's a right way and a wrong way for a wife to think about submission or to think about responding to her husband. Submission to your husband is not enabling him to continue in the sin patterns that that he's manifesting. So if you have a husband who is sinfully angry with you on a regular basis, submission doesn't mean, well, you just have to bear it. Right. Now, so loving your husband means you're going to come alongside Galatians one. If you see somebody who is caught in a sin, like stubborn anger, you who are spiritual, restore that person with a spirit of gentleness. Come along and say, we've got an issue here and we need to get some help. I need help for my issues. There's an issue here in, of anger in our marriage that is destroying you and destroying our marriage. We've got to get some help for this. Yeah. and And that is loving support for your husband. It's not just you saying yes, dear, I'll do whatever, and then we got to turn it around to husbands. Loving leadership doesn't mean Russell Moore, in in our Art of Marriage video series, said, you know, a Christian marriage is is not uh, wife bring me the chips and guacamole and then let's pray. It's it's not like you you do my thing and then we'll just baptize it in prayer. No, a, a loving leader. When I'm with guys at a weekend to remember marriage conference, I will often say. Um, how many of you work for a boss and they'll all raise their hand because we all work for a boss. I'll say, how many of you, give me the qualities of a good boss. And they'll say, well, a good boss is he listens. A good boss takes input. A good boss cares about his staff. All of these. So give me the qualities of a bad boss. He micromanages, he's abusive. He's it. I go, okay, you guys understand what a good leader and a bad leader look like. Now, when it comes to marriage, be the good leader not the bad leader. Don't micromanage, don't get abusive, don't be angry, but but listen to your wife and enter into her world and consider her views and take all of that as a part of your leadership responsibilities. I just think there are a lot of uh, caricatures of what leadership and submission are supposed to look like, and I tried to correct those in this book.
0: And you do, and that's what I'm so hopeful that those that are in Trying marriages and situations. And thankfully I'm not one of those statistics because my husband and I do base our foundation on the truth of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But those who don't, I encourage you so much to get this resource because it is it's it's filled with hope. It's it's points you to the living hope. And and Bob, you are such a great, not just a teacher, but you're a shepherd and you're so sensitive. You address the needs of so many. I mean, there is not one scenario that's not imagined or that you haven't experienced that you address with the hope and uh, and I, that's why I encourage our audience to go out and, and get this. If, if you wanna buy yourself a Christmas present, get this book, Love Like You Mean It. And I've said before, Bob, that if there were a soundtrack of my life. Uh, your voice would be prevalent throughout that soundtrack. And of all the thousands of interviews that I've listened to and learned through with you, uh, and I'm not saying this, at as I say this because I'm a South Carolinian and I'm kind of partial to anybody from my home state, but uh, your interview with Robertson McQuilkin, uh, still, I think that was in the uh, in the early 2000s maybe, yeah. Yeah. Uh, was just such an incredible inspiration to me. And and so much of, of this book parallels the way he lived with with his wife, um, Muriel, wasn't her name Muriel? Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. who would you say of all the thousands of interviews you've done would be among your favorite?
1: Well, we were just reflecting on this as a team recently. We were sitting down and just talking about what are the lessons we've learned about marriage and family from the guests we've had. Yeah. Dr. McWilkin One of the stories he shared in that interview, you probably remember this, he talked about being on a trip with Muriel. This was before she had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And they were having a conversation about a disagreement in marriage. And he was trying to logically and clearly explain why she was not thinking rightly about this issue. And she stopped him in the middle of the argument. and She said, Robertson, logic isn't everything and emotions aren't nothing. And I, I remember being struck by that because I could see myself in my relationship with Marianne where I could logically, lawyerly explain to her why my way is right and her thinking is wrong without taking the emotional component into it, the equation. So that's one of those stories that stands out for me as kind of a, a life-defining story. I, I think I'd add to the list the conversation that we were able to have a couple of times with Elizabeth Elliot, oh, yeah. who... what what a hero uh in how she lived and the sacrifices she made what a woman of wisdom and somebody who um who who really aspired to uh just follow the lord in in every step no matter how hard the path no matter how difficult the journey she said i'm i'm a bond slave i'm i'm gonna follow jesus and she In in, uh, one of the interviews we did with her, uh, I asked her the question, for those who don't know her name or don't know her story, 1956, she and her first husband, Jim Elliott, were in Quito, Ecuador, and they were working with a mission organization, trying to make contact with an unreached tribe group. Um, They were flying airplanes in and landing on a sandbar and trying to reach these tribesmen with the gospel of Jesus. And uh, Elizabeth, her husband, Jim Elliott, uh, along with a number of other men, were martyred uh, in their attempts at trying to reach this tribe. Elizabeth eventually went in and made contact with this tribe, along with uh, uh, Rachel Saint, the the sister of one of the other martyred men, and they they reached these people for Christ, and it was a dramatic conversion among the people of this tribe, the tribesmen who had martyred her husband. Mm-hmm. And I I asked her when when you were in Quito with a new baby, I think Valerie was maybe, I don't know, six months, a year old when Jim was, was martyred. And and here you are in Quito and the radio transmission comes back that there's no contact from the airplane anymore. And then the bodies are found. And here you are away from family, away from everybody. You're a mother with a young baby. You've just found out your husband is dead. You're in, in South America. I said, what did, what did you do? And she said, I said, weren't you overwhelmed by, how am I going to live? And she said, I learned an important lesson. And that is what you do is you do the next thing. You do what's right there in front of you and you don't take time to worry about what am I going to do six months from now? What am I going to do a year from now? Jesus talks about this. He says, don't, don't worry about the, the future, worry about the day. And so Elizabeth said, I just, I would do the next thing. And that's how God got me through it. And that's one of those, again, life lessons that has stuck with me to know, in the middle of adversity, in the middle of trial, what you do is you do the next thing. So I could give you a long list of oh, yeah. people you. I've had a chance to, to meet and to interview. What a privilege of the last 28 years of my life to be able to do that. And um, But but Elizabeth stands out as one of the high points in, in that. probably dream. good
0: that you pick somebody that's already graduated to heaven because you give the living ones a big head if they knew Bob Lapine thoughts. All- Thought that he was your favorite. <laughs> if you could pick one hero of the faith from God's word, who who would you pick, Bob?
1: Okay, if if I'm picking somebody from God's word, I'm going to gravitate toward the Apostle Paul. Yeah. And the reason I go toward him is because I I think we have some similarities. I was going to say I think we're alike in a lot of ways, but I don't want I don't want any listener to think Bob thinks he's like the Apostle Paul. No. I think uh, the two of us have this in common. Um, He was a recovering Pharisee. I think I'm a recovering Pharisee as well. Really? I I think I've had a tendency in my life to value um, knowledge and wisdom and to think uh, that makes me better than other people if I'm smarter than they are, Uh, or if if I'm gooder than they are. You know, if I keep the law, I keep the rules and you don't, therefore I'm better. Uh, You know, the older brother in the story of the prodigal son is the one who... Uh, we really should have pity for it. The prodigal is the one who who saw his sin and owned it. The older brother, we don't know if he ever saw his sin, and the sin of self righteousness. I was reflecting on this this week. I I think when you read the Bible, the sin of self righteousness is singled out as a uniquely um, heinous sin. You know, Jesus was was gentle with the adulterers and the tax gatherers, the thieves. And Jesus was sharp and rebuking with the self-righteous. Yes. And I think that's the tendency in my own life. So I I think the Apostle Paul, uh, because I relate to the background, the, the Pharisaical background that he would have, I think the question I'd have for him would be about endurance in the face of, read through 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 10, where he lists I was beaten, I was shipwrecked, I was thrown over, I was left for dead, stoned, yeah. all of that. You know, about the about the second time something like that happened to me, I'd have found a new line of work. <laughs> so the question I'd have for him is perseverance in the face of physical, emotional suffering for the gospel. Yeah. And you read the book of Philippians, where he's writing from the Mamertine prison, and And he's writing about how full of joy he is and how he's learned the secret of contentment, how he can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'd say unpack that a little more for me so I can, so I can really live that out in my own life.
0: Do you find it hard to, to rest? Uh, You know, I, I think I can't see you ever retiring because you're so involved in just Proclaiming truth wherever you go, and you're involved in so many ministries. How do you find that balance with Ann that you're not going all the time? I mean, Paul had forced rest in in prison, um, but how do you relax?
1: Yeah, and and I will I'll be honest and say I have to I have to choose to do that because um, I would be more type A. I'd be more driven, and and uh, really, this is where the Lord these interviews I've, I've had a chance to do on Family Life Today through the years have been so instructive in my own soul. We were having a conversation with a pastor from Denton, Texas, a guy named Tommy Nelson. Tommy
0: Nelson, yeah. He did that study on Song of Solomon. It was so good.
1: Wonderful study. Yeah. Well, Tommy had a, a six-month period in his ministry at Denton Bible Church where he was sidelined with um, what what in the old days would have been called a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Today, we diagnose it as a, a period of depression. Uh, but he he was preparing to teach through the Book of Romans at their church. And he was really excited about this. And, and one Sunday afternoon, his wife came in and found him in the, in the recliner. And she ta- she called to him and he did not respond. And she thought he'd had a stroke, took him to the hospital. They couldn't find anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Finally, a doctor said to him, You're depressed. And he looked at the doctor and said, I'm not depressed. He said, I love what I do. And the doctor said, No, here's what happens. Your adrenal glands have been stuck open for so long that they finally just quit and said, We can't do this forever. And they shut down. And so you have no energy. You have no you can't do anything. You're shut down because your adrenal glands have said, You put us on overdrive for too long. I asked him in that interview, I said, as a pastor who has to, you're working every Sunday. I said, where is your Sabbath? Where, where did you have your rest? And he said, I didn't have it. Yeah. He said, and I didn't, I didn't feel bad not having it because I was motivated and energized by everything I was doing. I looked forward to staying busy. Yeah. And that was just a good word for me to go, I need to force rest on myself even when I don't feel like I need it, because I do need it. God has said I need it, whether I believe I need it or not. So I need to trust the Lord and have this rhythm of Sabbath rest in my life. And there have been seasons, you know this Tara from projects that you get involved with, there have been seasons where uh, I'll sit down with Marianne at the beginning of a work project and I'll say, look, the next six weeks are going to be just crazy. Yeah. I'm going to be traveling a lot and yeah. it's we're going to be juggling a lot of balls yeah. and, and there's not going to be a lot of room for rest. But I always say when, that, when those six weeks are over, we're going to take an extended period okay. and, and refresh and rebuild. So I think whether it's every Sunday for you or whether it's Tuesdays for you or wherever it is in your week, or if you have a project where you're just going, 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 you got to build into your life these seasons of rest and don't wait until you say, I feel like I need it. Take it because God says you need it.
0: Bob, when you were writing this book, did you, um, did you detect spiritual warfare in your marriage at all? I mean, was there like a chapter where you and Mary, like she said, I can't believe you're writing on that one.
1: <laughs> you know, um, we, we've been married for 41 years and um, we're empty nesters at this point. We're in a, we're in a stage of life where all of our kids live in different states. All of our grandkids live in different states, which means our life really is involved with what's going on at family life and then what's going on in our church and then our life together with one another. Yeah. And um, God has been so good to us in these empty nest years to draw us closer to one another. Um, and I, I think the, the warfare that I felt as I was working on this book was a warfare around transparency and authenticity and honesty. And how much do I want to to tell about the reality of my own issues? Um, How much do I want to be truthful? And and I I felt a need to do that, but everybody likes to protect their reputation, right? So the the warfare wasn't really relational warfare as it was. um, I, I want to make sure that if I'm going to talk about this thing, I'm talking about it with integrity and with authenticity. So that was my heart going into this. And I think there were times the enemy was trying to say, oh, you don't have to say that, or you tell it this way or something.
0: Your hero of the faith, um, Charles Spurgeon, tell tell me why he would be your um, modern day hero of the faith.
1: Well, and I'm glad you corrected, because I think when, you know, all of our heroes have feet of clay, except for Jesus, right? Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad to uh, to reflect not only on the ones in scripture, but, but Spurgeon, you talk about somebody who was driven, Spurgeon had preached 600 times before he was 20 years old. Here's why he's my hero. He once spoke to a crowd of more than 20,000 people, and he didn't have a microphone. If I was having dinner with him, I just want to know, how did you project that loud so 20,000 people could hear you? How do you preach like that? Yeah. Uh, but but the, the interesting thing about Spurgeon is he was given to fits of depression. Yes.
0: Yeah. And
1: he often wrote and shared with his own congregation about that was the spiritual warfare in his life, was when he would come under this cloud of of depression. And um, just to see somebody, again, who perseveres in the midst of that and says, I'm not going to let this sideline me or defeat me, but I'm going to believe what God's word says, and I'm going to live that out. And um, that that's why he's a hero, a real guy with real issues who was sold out for Jesus and preached the gospel faithfully.
0: Yeah, as you know, our, our son's a cancer survivor, and I would read Spurgeon so often during those years of Daniel's treatment because he did write so much on suffering and where the, his hope was in the midst of that suffering, so I appreciate you referencing him. Well, Bob Lapine, it has been a true honor to be with you today, and I know our listeners and our viewers are going to be equally as blessed. Make sure Before Christmas, you all order Bob Lapine's book, Love Like You Mean It. Bob also is the content creator for Family Life Ministries, so a lot of the resources that you have used and benefited from over the years have um, been uh, anointed and come from this man, Bob Lapine. He has been gifted with an amazing communication skill, but also creativity Uh, with words and knowing scripture and how to apply it on a daily basis. The questions in Love Like You Mean It are truly fabulous um, to take around the dinner table with your family or your spouse or your loved ones. Uh, take it on date night. Uh, it's almost like a Bible study in First Corinthians 13. So if you'd like to dive more into God's truth, this is a fabulous resource to help you do this. These who are believers and those who are not. So please, I encourage you all to get a copy of this fabulous book. I don't
1: don't think you know this yet. Let me just share with your viewers and your listeners. We've just created a a 10-session video series around this book as well.
0: Oh, yay. It's
1: it's a small group series that you can do with other couples. Each of the videos is about 15 to 20 minutes long, and then there's a workbook you can go through. So I'm hoping a lot of couples will engage with the content through the video series, and you can go to familylife.com to find out more about that.
0: Oh, wonderful. I'm going to go get one of those right now. That's I was going to ask you what resource you're most excited about upcoming, and I would have to say this one because it is That's it. fabulous. Well, Bob, thank you, and viewers, thank you so much for watching today. We just pray that you... Rejoice and focus on the Christ of Christmas. And I pray that I've helped you a little bit with your Christmas list. Make sure you get Bob's book and make sure you order that today. And Bob, I pray that your family is blessed this season and that you do get some Sabbath rest after a very busy launch uh, season for you. Give Marianne our love and, and thank you for truly just being so consistent to seek the Lord Jesus Christ above all else. Friends, I can tell you being with Bob And Marianne truly just instilled in me a greater love for them, just to see a couple so humble. They've been around a lot of people, and they've influenced a lot of things. But their humility and their genuine concern for things of the Lord just endeared me more and more to their hearts. And uh, we love you, Bob. Lee sends his love. And thank you for sharing time with us on Point Me to Jesus today.
1: This has been a treat for me, and uh, best to you and Lee, and hope you guys have a a wonderful, blessed Merry Christmas, and thank you for the privilege of being able to be here and to be with you. Thank
0: you.